Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 45. Mark 6, 45. Well then, let me read to you the word of God from Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45, and we will end in verse 52. We just read and thought and, talked and thought about last week the feeding of the 5,000. And this is right after he fed 5,000 men, plus women and children, about 30,000 people, probably. Mark 6, 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them, being battered as they rode, because the wind was against them. Around three in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea, and wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke with them and said, Have courage! It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you again that we can meditate on your word. Thank you that we have the freedom to publicly read your word and worship you by reading your word. We worshiped you by singing your word. And now we want to worship you by meditating on your word. So, Father, we pray that you would incline our hearts to your word and not to material gain. We pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in this word. For many Christians, this is a familiar story. For some Christians and many non-Christians, this is not a familiar story. But we do pray that you would open everyone's eyes here to see your glory In this text, we pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, guard us from distraction and the burdens and pressures on our lives that would seek to occupy our minds in this hour. We pray that you would satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love, your covenant love, that we would rejoice and be glad in you all of our days. None of this can happen, Father, apart from your Holy Spirit. So we ask for him now to have his way amongst us and soften our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All of us have struggles and pressures. That's just true of life. If you live in this cursed world and you're an adult, to some some degree even children, lots of people can have pressures and struggles in life. That is just part of life. Which is why I like the song we just sang on on hymn number 66, Day by Day. I like what it talks about. I like the sound of the hymn. It sounds a little gloomy, right? It sounds a little, you know, like cloudy sky. But that's okay, because that's life at times, right? If we come to church every Sunday all happy and cheery, and we should, if you're happy and cheery, be happy and cheery. But if you're burdened, you shouldn't feel out of place either. If you're having a hard week, a hard few months, a hard few years, a hard few decades, this is a place for us. Christians gather to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who 
weep, right? We bear each other's burdens. And that's what the song is talking about day by day. And with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my father's wise bestowment, I have no cause for worry or for fear. The disciples could have sang the song while they were on the boat. Because this is so fitting for what they were going through at three in the morning as they were in the middle of the sea. So everyone has trials and struggles. And if you don't right now in your life, praise the Lord for that. Enjoy the break, right? Because it's coming again. They'll be back soon enough. Now, your struggle or pain might be physical pain due to health or medical issues. The pain might be emotional due to heartbreak and disappointment. It may be spiritual pain because you read your Bible every day, you pray, you go to church, and yet you still can't defeat certain temptations that keep recurring on your soul, and you feel weak, and you feel like you're not progressing at all in your Christian life. So maybe it's spiritual pain and discouragement. Maybe it's relational pain and struggle with a family member or a friend or both. Maybe it's an issue at the workplace. A tough situation with a coworker or a boss. Maybe an ethical situation where you're tempted to compromise and the pressure is to compromise and sin against God just to do what everyone else does at work and maintain the status quo. And there's pressure there. There's pain. There's trial. Here's the main idea from our text this morning. Jesus cares for his people in their struggles. Jesus cares for his people in their pain. We learned last week that Jesus cares for his people in their needs. They were hungry, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he started to teach them and shepherd them. They had a spiritual need, so he taught them. They had a physical need, so he fed them. Jesus always meets our needs according to how he defines our needs, which is our true need, and sometimes what we think we need, we just merely want. So here's a story today. We just read it. Let me recap it for you. Jesus just feeds 30,000 plus people. He sends his disciples into a boat into the sea. The crowd can't follow them into the sea, right? They need their own boats. They don't have their own boats. He sends 30,000 people, or he sends his disciples away. Then he sends the crowds away, the 30,000 people. He sends them away as they wanted to make him king because he fed them. I don't want to be your king in this way, the way you understand the kingdom. You guys need to go home. I fed you. Go home. So they go home. The disciples are on the sea. Jesus is by himself. He goes up to the mountain to pray by himself, spends a few hours talking to God, hearing from God, spending time with God. And then he comes down and he sees his disciples on the sea, in the middle of the sea, which is a really huge lake, he sees them there, and they're struggling. They're trying to row, and it's 3 in the morning, the fourth watch of night, between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. It's still pitch dark. There is no electricity. There are no street lights out there. You just got the moonlight, if it's even out, and the stars, which would be beautiful without street lights. But at the same time, if there's a wind, there's probably clouds. So you probably don't even have that light. And so there you are, in almost pitch dark, rowing against the weather and cold wind. And that's not a fun place to be. It's a scary place to be. And so there they are rowing. Jesus sees them out there. And then he starts to go out there to him. He doesn't swim. He starts walking towards them. And the water holds him up. And he just walks the way you've walked to your chair. Jesus walks on the water and goes toward the disciples. They're on the boat and they see him. So what do they do? 
naturally. Well, you do one of two things. You either freak out or you say, hey, it's Jesus. And what did they do? They freaked out, right? They were frightened. They were scared. Now, remember, they don't fully understand who Jesus is yet. If you were in the middle of the sea and you saw your pastor or one of your teachers walking out to you, you wouldn't guess, oh, that's PJ, right? That, that wouldn't be your first guess. You would freak out and say something else, right? So let's not be so hard on the disciples and say, why didn't they get it? Of course it's Jesus. Well, you know the story already, but they didn't know that, right? It's 3 a.m., they're scared, it's dark, you see a figure walking towards you, you know, and so they freaked out, they cried out, they got superstitious and thought it was a ghost. And so Jesus commands them. He says, be encouraged, it is I. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. We're not going to talk about this here because it's not a Mark story, but in Matthew 14, you could read the parallel account. Peter says, is it really you, Lord? And Jesus says, yes, it's me. And he says, if it's you, tell me to come out. And Jesus says, come. Peter gets out and walks on water. Then he feels the wind and the waves. He looks down. He freaks out. He drops into the water, starts drowning or starts, you know, now he's trying to swim. And he says, Lord, save me. And remember, there's wind. So this is not just a pond, right? A peaceful pond. This is waves and they're crashing on him. And he's saying, Lord, save me. Jesus pulls him up and they walk back to the boat. They get in the boat. They're on the other side of the shore uh, miraculously. And then they were amazed. It says here at the end of this story in verse 51, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, now this is interesting. What does it say at 52? Yeah. Instead, their hearts were what? Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. Okay, so does Jesus care for us in our struggles? Yes. From this passage, we learn four ways Jesus cares for us in our struggles. Okay? So if you're going through a struggle right now, here are four ways Jesus cares for you. If you're not in a struggle right now, just tuck this away into your heart and mind, and um, maybe you could draw on this um, when your next struggle comes. Number one, in verse 45. Go back to verse 45. Look at it. What does he do in verse 45? Immediately he made the disciples do what? Get into the boat and what? And go ahead of him to the other side. In other words, he sent his disciples away. Or we could say this. Jesus cares by sending his disciples into the struggle. It's a little strange. God sends them into the struggle. Is that like God to send people into struggle? You know the Apostle Paul? When he was converted in Acts chapter 9, the story, he's on the road to Damascus. He's knocked off of his horse and then um, he, he's blind. He goes to a Christian or God talks to another Christian and says, hey, you need to go to Saul and you need to, to pray over him. And he says, Saul's going to kill me. He's been killing Christians. And God tells Ananias this, go for this man, this is Acts 9.15, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings and the Israelites. And then he says this, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Is suffering in Paul's future? Yes, right? Did God send Paul into the suffering? Yes, he did. He sent him into the struggle. And Paul's not the exception there. That's Christian life. All Christians are sent into difficult situations. And, and the only reason we are is because Jesus was. Hebrews 2.18 says this, for since Jesus himself was tested and has suffered, he is able to help those who are tested. Jesus was tested and suffered, Hebrews 2.18. And so we learn that we have temptations that 
temptations don't come from God, James 1.13. They come from inside. But trials come from God. They are ordained by God, and we are sent into them. Keep your finger in Mark chapter 6, if you have a bookmark, and turn to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians and then in 2 Corinthians. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians 10.13, it says this. And if you can't find it, don't worry, just listen. Faith comes by hearing. No temptation, it says, 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man or to humanity. In other words, all humans go through temptations. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted what? Beyond what you are able But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you are able to bear it. So you will have trials. And in trials, you will be tempted. But you will not be tempted beyond what you are able to bear because God is faithful. In other words, every temptation you have to sin is limited by God and not too much for you. Now from that, we might get this mistaken Christian slogan that I am guilty of and just learned this week that I need to stop using it, which is, God won't give you more than you can handle. Have you ever said that before? I've said that many times. Imagine that. You're, 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 you're with another brother or sister in Christ. Their spouse of 45 years dies. You come and you pat them on the back and you say, God, can't, God won't give you anything more than you can handle. Is that encouraging at that moment? No, right? That is not what you say in that type of moment. Now, it says here that temptation, the temptation to sin won't be beyond what you can handle. But turn to 2 Corinthians. If you're in 1 Corinthians, just go a few pages to the right. I learned this this week from the Gospel Coalition uh, website. I think the pastor's name is Mitch. Uh, I don't remember his last name. He's in Kentucky. But he wrote an article on this, and I just thought it was so insightful. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 say this. This is Paul now talking about his suffering. For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction. Affliction, pain, trial. I don't want you to be unaware of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely what? Burdened. Overwhelmed, mine says. Overwhelmed beyond what? Beyond our strength. So that we even despaired of life. Indeed, we personally had a death sentence without, with, with, within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Was Paul overwhelmed? Yes. Was he burdened? Yes. Was the trial overwhelming and too much for him? Yes, it was beyond his strength. Trials can be and will be at times beyond your strength. And yet, Jesus sends them into the trial. Now, the temptation won't be, on, won't be beyond their strength. The temptation to sin won't be beyond their strength. But the trial can be beyond their strength. The test can be beyond their strength. And why did God put this test beyond their strength in verse 10? So that they will learn to what? Trust in who? Trust in God who raises the what? Who raises the dead. In other words, you're not strong enough. But if God can raise the dead, is God strong enough for your trial? Yes, right? God puts you in overwhelming situations to learn to not lean on yourself. Because you can't depend on yourself ultimately. And so here we learn... Now, Jesus, going back to the story here, and go back to Mark chapter 6, he sends them into their struggle. And here's what we, need, what we learn. God is in control, so we don't have to be, right? 
God is in control, so we don't have to be. But He's also good to us. He sends us into trials because He's in control, but yet He remains good to us and wants to draw us near to Him. If you're not a Christian here, maybe if, even if you are a Christian here, you might be thinking this. Everyone thinks this at some point. Why does God allow bad things to happen to people, right? It doesn't seem fair. Why does God, if God is so powerful, and if He's really loving and good, why does He allow bad things? Answer, now, here's a logical answer. And just so you know, don't use this on people who are going through an emotional pain. Because you could ask that question because you want to be really smart and philosophical, right? And so this is an answer to them. But if, you're, if someone just lost a spouse or lost a family member or a friend or is going through some intense pain, you don't use the logical answer here. But I'll just give you the logical answer. If God is powerful and if he's good and loving, how, why would he allow bad things to happen? The atheist will say, see, that proves that either God is not powerful or he's not what? Loving. Or God doesn't exist. Case closed. Atheism, right? That's one way of solving the logical syllogism. There's another way of solving it. If God is in control of everything and all-powerful, and if he's loving and good, why do bad things happen? Bad things happen because he must have a loving and good reason for them to happen. That's another logical answer. In other words, if God is so big that you can get mad at him, can't he be so big that his answer is beyond your understanding? Isn't that possible? That God can have a loving, good reason that you don't get in your struggle. That's possible, right? So that's a simple, logical way of saying that doesn't disprove God. If anything, that proves God, I would say, in some ways. All things work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Again, and if you're a church member here or if you're part of a church, what is God telling us as a church? God is telling us this. If God sends us into our struggle, God is telling us that when we help each other with our burdens, do we want to relieve people of their burdens? Yes, right? Christians always build hospitals wherever they go, right? That's why you have this Presbyterian hospital here or that hospital there because Christians do that as they, as they do mission work. They go spread the gospel and they build hospitals to help people relieve them of their pain. And yet, we need to understand as a church that as we want to relieve people of their pain, sometimes God ordains that they stay in the pain, like Paul, like Jesus. And in that, we need to remind them by, with tears and just being beside them that God is in control. And he can be trusted. And we might not have the answers of why he's good, but we know he's good. Okay, so that's the first thing. Jesus cares for us by sending us into our struggle. Secondly here, look at verse 46, and this one's a quick one. We're going to spend less than you know two minutes on this one. Verse 46 says, he sent them away and he went to the mountain to do what? Pray. To pray. So Jesus cares for us by praying for us in our struggle. Now, do I know Jesus was praying for us here in this text? Does it say he prayed for us here? It just says he prayed. It doesn't say he prayed for us, right? So how do I know he prayed for us? Well, I don't know for sure, but what's his other option? He prayed for himself. But everything he did here in his praying for himself was to serve who? Was to serve us. The Son of Man did not come here to be served, but to serve. Mark 10, 45. Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So even if Jesus is there alone, just trying to get closer to God, who does that benefit? Us. It benefits the disciples. The point here is, as Jesus communes with God, that's a way of caring for us. But we also know he does pray for us, because Hebrews 7.25 says, He is always able to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them, or to pray for them. 
Christian, do you know that Jesus prays for you? Do you find comfort in the fact that he prays for you? I mean, who would you rather have pray for you than Jesus, right? Can you please pray for me, Lord Jesus? He intercedes for us, it says in Hebrews 7.25. And so we should praise him for that. If you're not a Christian, here's a question for you. Who do you turn to when you're in your struggle? Everyone probably, maybe you have a best friend. Maybe it's a family member. But you know somewhere deep down that they won't be around forever, right? Or it's not for sure that they'll be around forever. You might, they might go before you. I just want to encourage you, if you're not a Christian, that God is a much more stable person to go to in your trials, more stable than anyone else. And for the church, what should we do? Now, I read to you 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9 about this trial that Paul had that was beyond his strength. Listen to verses 10 and 11 of 2 Corinthians 1. Just listen to it. It says this. Paul says, God has delivered us from such a terrible death, and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again. And then he says this in verse 11. While you, church at Corinth, while you, church, join in helping us by your prayers. How do, how do they help Paul in his affliction? By their what? Prayers. And then he says, Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. How do the gifts come to them? Through the what? Through the prayers of many. So what's another application here for us? To pray for each other. Pray for one another. Pray for the members of this church by name. There's a list there in the back of the church. You can grab one of them. They're right there. Monday through Saturday, Monday through Sunday, there's a list of maybe eight to ten members. And then there's regular attenders here as well. Pray for one another. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So pray for each other. Because you know what? If you pray for each other, you know who moved you to pray? Jesus did. And that's Jesus working in our church. And when we pray for each other, he answers our prayer. And notice they prayed for Paul, even though Paul's not part of their church too. So you can pray for other people and other Christians and other churches as well. Because God answers through prayers. Now, if you're a Christian, but you're not a member of a church, or you haven't joined yourself to a church, I just want to ask, I want to encourage you with something. Wouldn't you be happy if you're part of a church where they were praying for you regularly? I just want to encourage Christians who haven't joined a church. It's a blessing to be part of a church family. When they're committed to praying for you, and you're committed to praying for them. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're not part of a church, to join a church. Where, where Christians will pray for you and obey James 5.16 on your behalf. And not just when you're in, in, in medical need, but we'll pray for you regularly. Okay, that's the second thing. Jesus cares for us by praying for us. Thirdly, Jesus cares for us by meeting us in our struggle. Now, here's the main one. Okay, this is the main point or the main way he cares for us in this text. He meets us in our struggle. So let's go back to the story. Go to verse 47. It says, When evening came... The boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them being battered as they rowed, because the wind was against them. And around three in the morning, he came toward them, walking on the sea, and he wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were what? Troubled, terrified. Now, what were they scared of? That's the question I want to know. What were they scared of? They're fishermen. They've been, on, they've been at the sea for, for many years, right? That's their job. And you have at least four fishermen of the 12 disciples there on the boat with you. They shouldn't be scared. 
They've been in the sea in the middle of the night. They've faced wind and storms. And this doesn't seem to be as strong of a storm as the one in Mark chapter 4, where, God, where Jesus said, where he was sleeping. Remember that story? He was sleeping and he said, peace be still. It doesn't seem to be like that. But what were they scared of? Here's what I think they were scared of. They were scared of a ghost. Well, it says that they were scared of a ghost, right? In verse 49, when they saw him walking on sea, they thought he was a ghost. So they were scared of a ghost. And maybe I, I want to say they thought they were going to die. Right. I, 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 that's that's my if they're terrified here, maybe they thought they were going to die. And here's where it, it gets convicting for them. Maybe they thought they were going to die and they were going to miss out on the kingdom. Why did Jesus come to bring the what? To bring the kingdom. Right. What was Jesus message that they were preaching? Repent and believe in the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And there you are on the sea. You're one of Jesus, 12 main men. You're ready to ride up on his coattails into political and social glory. And now you think you're going to die on the sea, in the sea. And so they, they forgot their message. They thought that they were going to die there when Jesus told them, you're going to be with me in my kingdom. And so they were scared. And how did Jesus care for them while they were scared? He's walking to them. They're terrified in verse 50. What does, how does Jesus respond in verse 50? When they're terrified, what does he do? What's his response in verse 50? He speaks, he shares to them. He speaks to them, right? Immediately, he speaks to them and says, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. He speaks to them. Words. Words can terrify you and words can comfort you, depending on who they come from, right? I've used this analogy here many times, but words can completely change your disposition. You get a call in the middle of the night from a friend and they're panicking and they say words you're freaking out already, right? Because you're already imagining what could be on the other line. What's the news that's about to come through the phone? And all that changed for you was words. You just heard some words, and now all of a sudden your whole heart has changed, right? Words can discourage you. Words can tear you down. Words can freak you out and scare you. And words can encourage you. Words can give you hope. Words can give you strength. And here Jesus says, have courage. It is I don't be afraid. Now, how does Jesus care for them here? There's a strange phrase here. I don't know if you noticed it in verse 48. When he was walking toward them, it says, what did Jesus want to do in verse 48? What did Jesus want to do? Pass by them. That's strange. Why does he want to pass by them? Why would Jesus want to pass by his disciples? Now, it's not immediately obvious here. And to be honest, I, I wouldn't have known it myself if I was just sitting out listening to a sermon. So I'm not going to hold you in suspense any longer as I studied it and, and thought through it. And, you know, this word pass by is used in the Old Testament. This Greek word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used the same exact word in two very prominent places. Can you think of anyone passing by in the Old Testament? A famous Old Testament story of someone passing by someone else. God with who? God with Moses. Yes, so turn to Exodus 33. Keep your finger there, but turn to Exodus 33. It's great to preach to a church where many know their Bibles. It's also great for people who don't know their Bibles and are learning for the first time too. So don't be discouraged if you didn't know that. Exodus 33. Exodus 33, it's the second book of your Bible. Genesis, then Exodus. Exodus 33, 18. 
So here's Moses talking to God, and he says to him in verse 18, here's his prayer request. He says, please show me your what? Show me your glory. What does God say in verse 19? He said to them, I will cause all my goodness to pass by you. I'm going to cause my goodness to pass by you, to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. What does Yahweh mean? The great I am, right? I will, I will pass by you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Then go to Exodus 34, just the next chapter over, verses 5 through 7. You have the actual, God said he's going to pass by, and now he actually does it in verse 5. The Lord comes down to Moses on the cloud. So there's God coming down on the cloud. He stood with Moses there. Imagine standing with God on a mountain, right? In a cloud. And what does God do? He proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Verse 6. Then the Lord did what? Verse 6. The Lord did what? Passed in front. It's the same Greek word there. Passed by them. Passed in front of him. And proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh. The name of God. The covenant name of God. The great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what is this God like according to verse 6 and 7? Yahweh, Yahweh. A God compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger. And rich in faithful love and truth. Do you love this God? Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations. Forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Here's God passing in front, declaring his name that he is a God who is gracious, compassionate, and forgives sin, transgression, and iniquity. Amen? Praise God that we have a God who forgives sin. But it also says that God doesn't only forgive sin, he also punishes sin. What does it end with? He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of their father's wrongdoing on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is forgiving. God is also just and righteous and wrathful and condemning. That is who God is, according to this declaration. And he declared it in front of Moses as he passed in front of him. Now, Jesus was trying to pass in front of his 12 disciples. Why? To show them his glory. To show them his glory. What glory? The glory of the goodness of God. How? Well, let me quote to you two passages from Job and see if you could hear about Jesus in these two passages. Job 9.8 says this. God alone stretches out the heavens and walks on the waves of the sea. Sound familiar? God alone stretches out the heavens, the skies, and walks on the waves of the sea. Job 38.16 says this. To, when, when Job was challenging God, this is what God says to Job, to rebuke him. He says this to Job. Have you traveled on the sources of the sea? Have you walked on the depths of the ocean? What's the answer? Has Job done that? Do humans walk on the depths of the ocean? No. Who does? God does. So as Jesus is walking at 3 a.m., they're freaked out, and here comes the man, their teacher, walking on water. Only God walks on water. And he wants to pass by them and declare or show them his what? His glory. The glory of God. The glory of the goodness of God. 
Jesus is showing them that he is God in human flesh. And he's showing them that he's good because they are his 12 what? Disciples, they are his people. He is for them and not against them. They should feel encouraged. Look who's walking on the water. God in human flesh. And we are his 12 men. Wouldn't you feel encouraged if you're one of the 12 of Almighty God who walks on water? Shouldn't that encourage you? Yes, right? They should feel privileged. They should feel encouraged. But they don't. They're terrified and freaked out. They don't get it. Their hearts are still what? Hard, hardened, right? So Jesus commands them, don't be afraid, it is I. Now, instead of saying, have courage, don't be afraid, it is I, he actually says, here's another way of translating it, and I like it. This is what helped me in my own walk with God this week and last week, because I was supposed to preach this last week. Another way you could translate it is this. Cheer up, it is I. Don't be afraid. Cheer up, right? You ever, you ever have friends who are so cheery when you're really down and discouraged? They're just smiling and they can't stop smiling and they're always happy? You know, cheer up, and you're just like, Get away from me, right? You just, just get away from me. You're not helping me here. Here's Jesus. They're freaking out. They think they're going to die. And you hear a voice say, cheer up, guys. This is not a cheery moment for them. But here's Jesus telling them to cheer up. And this is what Jesus is telling you this morning as well. And this is what I hear God telling me as I'm going through trials. I hear God saying to me, cheer up, PJ. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, why cheer up? Because he says, cheer up, it is I. Now, that translation, it is I... The Greek is ego, ego eimi, which another way of translating that is, I'll, I'll, I'll translate the whole thing. Cheer up, I am. Don't be afraid. Does that sound familiar to you? Cheer up, I am. Don't be afraid. I am? What does that remind you of? Yahweh, right? Remember in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus was there and he says, Before Abraham was... I am. And the Jews pick up stones to, to kill him because they, are, they understood that he was saying he is God. And that's blasphemy for any human to claim to be God. But here Jesus was claiming it. And they wanted to kill him. And here he is on the sea saying, cheer up, I am. Where is he getting that from? Are you still in Exodus? If you're still in Exodus, just go back a few chapters to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, it says this, Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? This is when Moses was going to take his people out of Egypt, and God was sending him. So they're going to ask me, What's your name, God? What am I going to tell them? What's God's answer in verse 14 of Exodus 3? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. So do you see it here? Why should they not be afraid on the, on the sea? Because here is Jesus passing by them to proclaim his name. And he still gets to proclaim his name. Cheer up, I am. 
Don't be afraid. I am the covenant God who came to fulfill the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I promised that I would give you a people. I promised that I would give you a land. And I promised that you will be a blessing. You will be blessed. And even though you deserve the curse for your sins, you will be blessed forever and ever and ever. And we know that in Revelation 21 and 22, in the new heavens and the new earth. In the new Jerusalem, we will be blessed forever and ever and ever, even though we deserve the curse for our sins. Why? Because Jesus is the great I am who comes to fulfill that covenant promise. Do you understand? I know you Christians understand, but let me remind you. Do you remember that you, are cur- you were cursed for your sins? Do you know that? The wages of sin is death, eternal death. You are cursed. And yet here's Jesus coming to you in the middle of your trial and saying, Cheer up. I am. Don't be afraid. I know you deserve the curse. You deserve to drown in the sea. You, brothers and sisters here, you deserve to drown in your struggles. You deserve to drown in your trials. Don't we? We deserve that. And yet Jesus comes to us and says, cheer up. I have come to bring blessing. Why can I bring blessing even though you deserve curse? Because Jesus went to the cross and hung on the cross and took the curse for us so that we can have the blessing. So that when we hear I am on judgment day, We're celebrating. Not everyone's going to celebrate on Judgment Day, right? Some are going to be terrified when they they meet the great I Am. Because for God to be that, remember He says, I am a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. Who is the great I Am? He's the one who forgives sinners and punishes sinners. And so, The great I am is an encouragement to to the Christian. It's supposed to be an encouragement to the Christian. And it's supposed to be terrifying to the non-Christian. If you're not a Christian, here is bad news for you this morning. God will judge you. God will judge you for every sin you've ever committed. He'll judge Christians too. Just so you know, non-Christians, if you're like, well, just us? No. He'll judge everyone. But I'm telling you as a non-Christian, God will judge you for everything you've ever done. All your good and all your bad. And the Bible says that even if you commit one sin, you deserve hell. Are you going to be able to stand? No one can stand. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All deserve his curse. But here's the good news. That's bad news for you, non-Christian friend. Here's the good news. Jesus Christ took the curse. Jesus Christ took the curse on the cross and died for your sins and rose from the dead if you will repent from your sins, turn from your sins, embrace Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus, who is God, who walks on water, who is the great I Am, who died for sinners and rose from the dead. He will save you from your sins this morning if you call out to Him to save you from your sins. We ought to be cheered up. We ought to cheer up as Christians in our struggle. Now, this is not blind optimism. Bobby McFerrin, does that name mean anything to you? Wrote the number one hit single in 1988. You know what the name of that song is? Don't Worry, Be Happy. Right. Let me quote the great theologian, Bobby McFerrin. Ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came to take your bed. Don't worry. Be happy. The landlord say your rent is late. He may have to litigate. Don't worry. Be happy. Here I give you my phone number. When, I, when you worry, call me. I make you happy. Don't worry, be happy. Ain't got no cash. Ain't got no style. Ain't got no girl to make you smile. But don't worry. Be happy. Because when you worry, your face will frown. 
and that will bring everybody down. So don't worry, be happy. He says later on, put a smile on your face. Don't bring everybody down like this. Don't worry, it will soon pass. Whatever it is, don't worry, be happy. Now that song is not helpful. It's not helpful. I should have quoted, you know, the more popular or the more current song, uh, Pharrell's song, Happy. Because I'm happy. And, and the same, same, same effect with both songs. They're very cheery, right? They make you feel happy. Problem is, there's no substance behind it. My rent is late. You're telling me, don't worry, be happy. Okay, but I still got to pay rent, right? The song doesn't pay my rent. It doesn't. The song might make me feel happy, but it doesn't give me any real happiness. It doesn't solve the problem. And here, Jesus is not giving that don't worry, be happy speech. He's not singing a song like that. He's saying, cheer up. Why? Just because you should cheer up? No, because I am. Because I'm God. And I'm your God and I'm here with you in your trial. I didn't stay on the shore. I came out to the sea to meet you in your struggle. To meet you in your pain. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news. In the middle of your pain, Jesus is. He's the great I am and he's there with you. He's there for you and not against you. So can you cheer up a little bit? Can you be encouraged that Jesus is there? The only way you won't be encouraged and you'll stay, still remain frightened is if you are the way the disciples are. Which look at verse 52 of Mark chapter 6. What was their problem? They were what? Their hearts were what? Hardened. The only way you will remain completely discouraged in your trial, with no praise, with no, no inkling of thanksgiving, with no encouragement at all, the only way you're going to do it is if your heart remains what? Hardened. Because Jesus is the great I am and he's for you. If that doesn't encourage you at all, then your heart is hardened. So that's the third point here is that Jesus meets us in our struggle. And here's the last one. That was the main one. Here's the last one. Jesus cares for us by patiently shepherding our hard hearts in our struggle. He cares for us by patiently shepherding. Now, their hearts were hardened here. Now, what is a hard heart in verse 52? What is a hard heart? Here's what um, R. Allen Cole says. Hardness of heart is that lack of spiritual perceptivity, that lack of readiness to learn, for which we are ultimately blameworthy ourselves. So it's when you can't spiritually understand. It's when you're not ready to learn. Now, why were they hardened? It says here they didn't understand the what in verse 52. They had not understood about the loaves. Remember the story last week? How many did they feed? How many men? 5,000 plus women and children. Remember how they had to distribute the food? How long did it, remember how long it probably took? Longer than it takes to read the passage? At least 30 minutes? How do you feed 30,000 people and you keep coming back to Jesus, you get more bread and more fish, and you keep running back and forth? That takes a long time. You would think if you were running back and forth for one hour distributing food, you would say that Jesus is special. Right? I mean, that has to be the conclusion. This guy is from another planet, in a sense. He is something else. And we are his men. What a blessing. That's what they should have thought. But they didn't. So they're scared instead of being encouraged when he's there in the sea. Why? What was their problem? Even though they're going back and forth, what was their problem? Here's what I think it is. Instead of humbly meditating on the teaching of Jesus to understand the miracle of feeding 5,000 and the miracle worker who Jesus is, 
they were merely content to be excited with their VIP all-access passes where they get a front-row seat to all the miracles of Jesus and they get their fat cat positions of being the main guys in the kingdom. And they were happy to just go along for the ride from amazing event to amazing event and not really stopping to think, who is this man? Their hearts were hard. They were distracted and they didn't understand his teaching. There's a warning here for us. You need to beware, brothers and sisters. If you're a Christian, you need to beware. Why? You can be so close to the action, like they were. Weren't they close to the action? You can be so close to the action and still have a stony, hard heart, lacking faith while you read your Bible, while you go to church, and while you even preach a sermon on hard-heartedness. I can have a hard heart while I'm preaching about hard-heartedness. You can be so close to it and still miss it. Just because I'm preaching doesn't mean I can't have a hard heart. And just because you've been a Christian for five years or ten years or twenty years or eighty years or whatever doesn't mean you can't have a hard heart. How do you know if you have a hard heart? How do you respond in your, in your trials? Are you courageous? Are you encouraged by Jesus that he is the great I am? Or are you overwhelmed to the point of complaining and not trusting God and fearing? That's how you'll know if you have a hard heart or not. It's how are you responding to the trials you're in when Jesus is the great I am? How do you respond? That shows you the hardness or softness of your heart. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to warn you as Christians to beware. But Jesus is patient with them, and he still continues to teach them. Here's another thing we learn, and I'll say this as we close. Seeing miracles doesn't mean you get faith, right? And being amazed by miracles doesn't mean you believe. Have you ever heard anyone say, if God would just show himself to me with some miracle, like if he just make this pulpit float, then I'd believe in him. Is that true? No. These guys are seeing him feed 5,000 people. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and they were resolved to kill him. As soon as they saw it, they're like, we got to kill this guy because he's getting too popular. They saw him raise someone from the dead and they didn't believe. Hard hearts. Right? Being amazed and seeing miracles does not give you saving faith. Do you remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man while he's in Abraham's bosom and the rich man's in hell? And the rich man says to, to Abraham, please send Lazarus back from the dead to go tell my brothers so that they don't end up in hell with me. And what does Abraham say in Luke 16? Abraham says this, they have Moses and the prophets. They got the Bible. And then what does the rich man say? No, no, Father Abraham. But if someone from the dead goes to them, then they'll repent. And what does Abraham say in Luke 16, 31? He told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Seeing a miracle doesn't necessarily give you faith. Believing the word. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Hearing the word with a soft heart, where you repent from your sins, you trust Jesus, you repent from your fear, you repent from your complaining, and you say, Lord Jesus, soften my heart. I want to know who you are, and as the great I am who stands beside me in my pain, help me to cheer up. Help me to cheer up in my pain, because you are here. Well, they didn't understand God, but Jesus would 
spend at least two more, another year with them, teaching them about who he was until they came to know him. Do you understand that Jesus is God? Not just God in general, but the God in your specific trial and struggle? Do you know he's God of your pain right now? He's the God of your pain. And your pain is different than the person beside you, their pain. He's the God over your pain right now. Do you acknowledge and worship him as God, Lord, and provider? Does your acknowledgement of him as God in your trial, does that change the way you relate and interact with him and with other people? Does it make you more humble? Does it make you more patient? Does it make you more loving? Does it make you bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Or is it the other list in Galatians 5? Outbursts of anger, envy, strife, dissension, sorcery, sexual immorality. What do your trials produce in your life? Do you still not understand that he is the great I am? God is reminding us that he is with us. So cheer up, brothers and sisters. Jesus is Lord. Don't be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That's what we need. In moments of fear, in moments of pain, in moments of struggle, we don't need the pain to go away, necessarily. Not at least right now. We will need it to go away in the end when you come again. But we don't need the trial to leave right away. We need you. We need you, the great I am. So, Father, we thank you that you come to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, and your Holy Spirit lives in us. Help us to cheer up, Father. Soften our hearts to know that you are the great I am, and you are for us and not against us, as we trust in Jesus and have turned from our sins again and again and again. And we pray for any of our non-Christian friends here that even this morning you would soften their hearts to trust in Jesus and turn from their sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.